The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. The law is not divisible. It is not in ten parts or in one hundred parts. It is a unit. In the divine sense, the law has no parts. You see, the law is like a chain tying a boat to the shore. The boat will drift just as quickly when you cut one link as when you use a blowtorch to destroy all the links. Over a half a century ago, the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, then pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, saw the need to spread God's Word beyond the hearing of his local congregation. He started the weekly radio outreach, which has become known as Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. The application of God's Word as taught by Dr. Barnhouse is as relevant today as when he first taught over the radio airwaves decades ago. The message we will be featuring on this week's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Free from the Law. Have you ever been driving along the highway, seen a state trooper writing out a ticket, and thought of yourself as righteous because someone else was getting the ticket? The truth is, all of us at some place and time have deserved to be ticketed for the way we have driven. We are all guilty. So too with God's commandments. So if none of us can keep God's commandments, then why did he give them to us? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is Galatians chapter 3 and verses 10 through 17. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Free from the Law. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. We thank thee for thy great grace. How we glory in thee and in thy love that thou didst strike thy son in order that it would not be necessary for thee to strike us. And we ask thee that as we study today of the cross of Jesus Christ and see its work as thou dost see it, that we shall understand all that thou hast done for us in our Savior. Bless the truth to each heart. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In our study of Galatians today, we begin in chapter 3 and verse 10. The argument in the following verses must be followed closely, for here God reveals the inner nature of the atonement. Why did Christ die? And he answers the great ethical question, how could an absolutely just and holy God strike his just and holy son? There are several steps in the argument. The law is a unit, integral in itself. Two, anyone who breaks the law at any point has broken it all. Three, the law had a condition hidden away in a clause in Deuteronomy. Four, Christ, though 
absolutely innocent transgressed that condition. Five, thus Christ became a transgressor of the whole law. And six, therefore, God was able to put our sins on Christ and strike him instead of us. Now let us read verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The law is not divisible. It is not in ten parts or in one hundred parts. It is a unit. In the divine sense, the law has no parts. James points this out in his epistle in chapter 2 and verse 10 when he says, Whosoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in one point is guilty of all. You see, the law is like a chain tying a boat to the shore. The boat will drift just as quickly when you cut one link as when you use a blowtorch to destroy all the links. When Christ was asked which was the greatest commandment, he replied, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The person whom the world calls good, or very good, has never loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and is therefore a sinner. He has broken the law, and in God's sight is no better than the man whom the world calls bad or very bad. And thus, every man in the world must say, I am guilty. I am a sinner. I am guilty of all. In verses 11 and 12, we read, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it's evident. For the just shall live by faith, and the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Now, it's evident that man is not justified by keeping the law. A man can no more be saved by anything he does than he could be lifted from the ground by his own unaided efforts. And to prove this fact, Paul quotes Habakkuk. This verse is quoted three times in the New Testament, and it's a part of the argument in the epistle to the Hebrews and in that of the epistle to the Romans. It's the famous verse that the just shall live by faith. Now in Romans, the emphasis is on the man. The justified man shall live by faith. In Hebrews, it's on the faith. The justified man shall live by faith. But in Galatians, the emphasis is on the life. The justified man shall live by faith. So simple is faith that it needs no definition. When one truly knows Christ as personal Savior, commitment to him in faith is simple. If we believe any newspaper ad or a radio announcement or a television announcement, the word of a friend, the word of an acquaintance, or even the word of a stranger, well, then we know what it is to believe in Christ. There are two circles which have different centers and their edges do not overlap. If you live by legalism, you're not in the circle of faith which centers in Christ alone. If you're living in the circle of faith, you have given up all thought of redemption by the works of the law, and your life centers in Christ. To whichever philosophy you commit yourself, there is the circle of your life. And so now in verse 13 we read, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, 
being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Now the first point in the development of this doctrine is that the law is a unit. If it is broken in any point, it is completely broken. We now come to the next step in the teaching. Christ became a lawbreaker. He therefore became guilty of the whole law and brought the law's curse upon himself. Here is the answer to the problem of how a just and holy God could pour his wrath upon his dearly beloved son who was also holy and righteous. Galatians 3.13 should be memorized by every Christian and it should be meditated upon in great depth. Learn this verse by heart. God, of course, knew what he was going to do. He and the Lord Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, had planned the work of redemption and set forth in this chapter are the central principles of salvation. When a man departs from God, he deserves nothing but judgment. In the Garden of Eden, Adam sinned and death passed upon all the race. Every member of the human race thereby died spiritually. Well, how were men to be brought back to God? How could God remove the sin from the sinner and love the sinner without losing his own holiness? And the answer is found in this great text. Whoever transgresses any part of the law has transgressed it all. Now in the book of Deuteronomy, God saw fit to place a simple verse, which is one of the most significant verses in the whole Bible. It contains the answer to the question, how could Christ become guilty and accursed without losing his sinlessness? For there was no sin in Christ. The eternal Son of God did no sin. He was the Lamb without spot and without blemish. But when he allowed himself to be arrested, when he permitted men to nail his body to the cross and lift it up outside the city wall, he became an innocent transgressor of the law of God. And then it was that God was able to make Christ a curse. In the letter to the Corinthian church, we have an amplification of our text. For we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made Christ to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is simply because back in Deuteronomy, there was the text in the law, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And in this text, there is also the explanation of that terrible cry from the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some have interpreted this cry as an expression of despair by a suffering man. One famous preacher said that Christ was never more mistaken than when he uttered this cry, that God the Father was never more with Christ than in that suffering hour. But such an idea is utterly contrary to the biblical concept of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin. For Christ on the cross was the love of God paying the ransom to the justice of God. God the Father and God the Son were dealing with each other in and through the Holy Spirit in an area that was totally beyond man. This area of salvation is outside of humanity and beyond humanity. But all that was done there flowed down into humanity and became the way of redemption. And eternal life is given to us because of that death there. 
Several years ago, I stood looking down on the largest dam in the world. And then I looked out over the vast stream that had become a great lake because of that dam. I instantly thought in these terms of the nature of God and what our text reveals about him in relationship to our sins. Man sinned, and the wrath of God flowed out against that sin like a great river. And in his eternal vision, God saw all the sins that would ever be committed by all the sons of men. And his wrath flowed out against every one of those sins. But God put up a dam of patience. And the dam of God's patience rose higher and higher, holding back his wrath. And then came the day when the Lord Jesus Christ became the Word made flesh, dwelling among us. Jesus took a body in order that the body might be put on the cross. The island of Calvary, we might say, was just below that great dam of God's patience. And when the Lord Jesus Christ allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, he became a violator of that little verse in the book of Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And the wrath of God broke down the dam of his patience. And God's hatred of all sins that had been committed before the time of Christ, and God's hatred of all the sins that would be committed after the cross, your sins and mine, all that wrath poured down upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Then was fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. It pleased Jehovah to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. Then was accomplished that which Peter taught on Pentecost. Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This was salvation. This was ransom. This was redemption. This was the end of sin. This was the ground of pardon and forgiveness. This was the foundation of our confidence and full assurance. Yes, the wrath of God poured over Jesus Christ, who was under the curse of being hanged upon a tree. For there in Deuteronomy 21, 23, God said, He that is hanged is accursed of God. God had the right to put Christ to death because Christ had thus become a violator of his eternal law. And now God has the right to give us eternal life because of that death. Back in the days of wood-burning locomotives, an incident occurred which my father told me and which perfectly illustrates this great truth. One day the sparks from a locomotive set on fire the wheat fields. The wheat was just at that delicate moment when it was ripe enough to burn, but not ripe enough to harvest. A farmer saw the wind coming across the plains and the smoke rising, and he knew that the fire was racing towards him. Now he was able to save his buildings by lighting a backfire. But as the fire burned away from his barn, his own fields of wheat were destroyed. And then when the large fire reached the area, of course, it burned around that which had been already burned and his buildings were saved. Somewhat in despair because of the loss of his crop, he walked out into the still smoldering stubble. And there he saw the charred body of a hen. Idly, he turned the body over with his toe. And out from under the blackened wings ran 12 little yellow chicks. 
The fire had burned the mother, and the chicks had been spared. Oh, let us not forget that there came a day when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary, and God tore down the dam of his patience, and in his wrath he struck Jesus Christ with all that pent-up wrath, and he put Jesus Christ to death. God the Father put his Son to death. Three days later, God raised him from the dead, and you and I ran out from under the shadow of Christ, free and alive forevermore. Now this is Christianity, and nothing else is Christianity. Jesus paid it all, and he has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been made a curse for us. In his marvelous wisdom, inscrutable, God put salvation in the mold of Israel, and for almost 2,000 years it was necessary to be born a Jew or to become a Jew in order to find salvation. Salvation could be secured only through faith in God's act of remitting sins on the ground of the death of the sacrificial lambs which pointed to Christ. Now we must not think that there was any value or worth in the animal blood. God was looking beyond those sacrifices and seeing the death of his own son. But now Christ died, and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ broke that mold of religion and turned salvation out to all the world. No longer was salvation bound within the confines of one nation. And one of the great purposes of Christ's death is revealed in this verse. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Verse 14, so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Verse 8 of this chapter tells us beyond the shadow of a doubt that the blessing of Abraham is nothing less than justification by faith. Here in verse 14, Paul is saying that since Christ became a curse for us, taking upon himself the full tide of God's wrath against sin. Abraham's blessing of justification by faith reaches to Gentiles as well as Jews, and with no added conditions. As everyone knew, Gentiles had received the Holy Spirit, and this was incontrovertible proof that they were justified. But in spite of the truth of this reasoning, there were those who offered one more point of argument. All right, they said, so justification is by faith alone. But sanctification, that's another matter. That is achieved by keeping the law. Faith is the first step, but the discipline of the law is necessary for perfection. After all, didn't God himself give the law to supplement the covenant of promise? No, thunders Paul in effect. The law cannot help out the promise. God cannot change. God cannot lie. Even in human relations, the thing you suggest is impossible. Listen to this example, says Paul. And he tells us in verse 15, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant. Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Put it into modern language. I'm going to give you a human illustration, says Paul. If two men make a contract and it's signed, confirmed, neither party can cancel it or add to it. Now that is a well-understood fact. 
If you go to a contractor and present the specifications and blueprints for a house you want to build, and if the contractor agrees to build the house and you and he both sign the contract, you can't go to him two weeks later and say, oh, by the way, I've decided to put another room and bath over the garage, but at no extra cost. Nor can he come to you and say, oh, you know, I'm sorry, I forgot to figure in the plumbing. If a contract is made, neither side can alter it. And likewise, God himself could not alter his contract, his covenant with Abraham. Justification is by faith without any works whatsoever. It was impossible that God should add to the specifications. God is just, and God cannot be dishonest. And then Paul adds another proof to his brief for promise versus law. In verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, singular, which is Christ. In passing, let me point out the great teaching here on verbal inspiration. The whole argument of the epistle to the Galatians hinges on the singular instead of the plural of a noun back in the book of Genesis. God says, I did not say seeds, I said seed, because I was not talking about the progeny of Abraham, I was talking about Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. If we put this in modern language, it will be as follows. God, party of the first part, makes a contract with Abraham and Jesus Christ, joint parties of the second part, that he is going to justify those who believe in Christ, apart from any consideration of their works. Now, says God, this is the way I contract to save Abraham. I have made a contract with Abraham and Christ that I will save Abraham by faith. And as long as Christ is faithful to his part of the contract, God must be faithful to his. Let me give you an illustration. Suppose I go to the bank and say to an official, I'd like to borrow $10,000. Well, Dr. Barnhouse, what is your security? Well, I'm sorry, but I don't have any. The banker looks at me and says, well, Dr. Barnhouse, I uh, occasionally listen to your broadcasts and I agree with all that you preach, but a bank is a bank and we must have security. Could you get someone to sign your note? Now, if I knew, for example, Mr. DuPont, I'm sorry that I don't, but if I did, I might say, well, how about Mr. DuPont? Oh, that'll be fine, says the banker. So I get Mr. DuPont to sign my note. Then I take the note to the bank and they count out $10,000 in bills. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Now you see, the bank would have no further interest in my assets. Mr. DuPont's assets are quite sufficient. If I should go bankrupt or die, there would be no run on the bank. The contract was made with some preacher. What's his name? The banker might say, Barnhill, Barnhouse, you know. They wouldn't care who I was. The contract was made between this preacher and Mr. DuPont. Now God's contract was made with Abraham and Christ. Abraham was already bankrupt. So far as any good works or merit of any kind were concerned, and so are you and I. But this promise of justification for Abraham and us was made to Christ, and he can never go bankrupt. So in verse 17, he continues, and this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, 
the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of no effect. The law was a postscript to the great covenant of salvation by grace which had been made before to Abraham. God's grace gives us salvation because of what is in his heart, not because of what is in our life. Everything we have is because God is love. And because he loves us, he gave the promise to Abraham by faith, free and clear of works. And our God and Father, we pray thee that as we think of these great things, that our hearts may go out in a great reaction of love to thee. Thou hast saved us. Thou hast raised Jesus Christ from the dead and brought us out alive. After the storm of thy wrath has gone over us, we have come out free. And here is our salvation, and herein we worship thee. Bless the truth to each heart in this hour. We ask it in the name and for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks be to God for the believer that Jesus Christ has signed the contract on our behalf with the Father. God doesn't look to us for our righteousness, but he looks to Christ. If you would like to review today's message and additional teachings by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, you can hear these broadcasts anytime, anywhere around the globe via the Internet. The Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible Real Audio Internet website is accessible by visiting Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals online at www.alliancenet.org. Log on to this week's message entitled, Free from the Law. An audio copy of today's teaching is also available by calling us toll-free, 1-800-488-1888. Today's message again is entitled, Free from the Law. Or simply ask for message number Q109. We'd also like to make available to you a complimentary copy of Dr. Barnhouse's booklet entitled, Death Swallowed Up in Victory. In this four-chapter booklet, Dr. Barnhouse answers such questions as, What happens the moment you die? Where are the dead right now? Is there such a thing as soul sleep? These and many other questions on the subject of death are addressed with biblical insights. Ask for a free copy for yourself or to share with a friend who might be going through bereavement or struggling with the issues of death. Ask for your free copy of Death Swallowed Up in Victory when you call or write. You may also request a free catalog of all of Dr. Barnhouse's booklets and audio teachings. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insights and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching materials which will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. If you would like more information on the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, or if you would like to support and further our work, contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free. 1-800-488-1888 or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org Join us again next time for more classic teaching on Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible.